Hey, good morning. Wow, on a morning like this, we got a full house, and uh, we got more than 20 people watching us online at the other uh, service, so uh, welcome to those watching by live feed, and uh, uh, God is really moving. It, I don't know how your trip here was. Last night, uh, I actually, God had to split the sea so I could slide right through it, my little Jeep, which by the way, my Jeep had been slandered by Rob Chipicoyo, uh <laughs> as being kind of shabby or raggedy, but I want to note, you know, because his very pregnant wife, Lisa, wants him to still be employed, he sent me an apology. <laughs> So he is still employed here, but I know that was Lisa. It wasn't Rob. Um, but, uh, yeah, I actually spun out and spun around, and all I did was take a few splinters out of a telephone pole. I could hit that thing, you know, but God let me walk right through that. So praise God. I'm sure he delivers us many times. Uh, and uh, our full house and so many good things are happening. I'm going to, before I preach God's word, bring you an update on our building construction. Uh, many of you, this is the dream. Uh, and it is going to be reality, but I need to explain to you, we have had a bit of a delay from what we had given you to expect, uh, in that if you were part of that great uh, groundbreaking, the ceremony and the celebration we had here, we had hoped to break ground uh, in the fall, and we're not there, but this is the future where we're headed, uh, a worship center and building that can seat and administer to twice as many, can have simultaneous the events, can deliver you uh, your hot coffee on the first floor as you come in uh, and do so many other amazing things. Uh, this is a place where we will have room to grow and, and more than double our impact in who we minister to. But we've had a delay in the timing. We had hoped to break ground on this project in the fall, and we did not meet that goal for one reason. Uh, we failed to receive the necessary approval and permits from our township officials, uh, and that's despite the hard work and expertise of the team. So I just wanted you to know that much behind the scenes work has been done to move this forward. We believe the final obstacles to this are being met right now and will be overcome. And more than that, as believers, we know the Lord is in control of the perfect timing of all of this, and he's going to bring it about in his perfect timing for his purposes. So, but we do ask you to pray with us for those permits and approvals. And while our expert team uh, works and we wait for that permit, I want you to know this, other major milestones have been completed. One of those milestones includes that all of the design drawings are finished. And right now, subcontractors have those in their hands with the challenge of giving us a firm, fixed price that fits within our budget. Because our commitment is to like squeeze every single dollar that you have entrusted us so that it, it builds the best and greatest facility for ministry. So we will very soon have a confirmed price, a contractually, contractually obligated price from our contractor that fits within our budget. And we're at the starting gate. And I just want you to know that while it seems like winter is here forever, once spring gets here, and it's going to get here, uh, you're going to see some big yellow equipment, and you're going to see some dirt moving, and you're going to... Uh, be tempted to complain about dirt on your tires and dirt on your shoes that might spread out in the parking lot. Um, and, and I just want to celebrate with you that two years ago, it was two years ago, we cast the vision for this expansion, but we explained to you this vision would only be a dream unless it was resourced. And we asked you if you would pray about what Jesus was leading you to give, and then that you would respond by giving us indications in the form of faith promises to say, this is what I intend by God's grace to give. That, that had to happen in order for us to move forward. And we've asked, you responded, you prayed, Jesus spoke to your hearts. And we are at year two of, the th of what many took as three years of planned giving. And we have received already in hand $4.9 million. That is just fantastic. 
Uh, and that's out of the more than $6.5 million dedicated to that, this project. So we're just about $1.5 million short. Now, some of you were not here for that process, and I just want to invite you in because part of this is while we, we appreciate every gift and it really does make it possible for us, I want as many people, when we cut the ribbon and have our opening day and you experience Christmas Eves that are able to do twice as much as we do now, um, that you can say, I was part of that. So I just invite you, if you weren't part of that, to pray and consider what you might give as a designated a gift toward this mission of reaching our community more effectively. Now, our financial experts, and we have a great team, uh, they tell us we can begin this project uh, with what's been given uh, and our debt facility, but that we can complete this project with our willingness to borrow responsibly uh, when we receive 90% of all the pledges. By completed, I mean all the renovations that will need to be done here. This room's going to look a little more like a gymnasium, and the rest of the building uh, that we live in now is going to undergo some changes. We'll be able to do all of that when we reach 90% of those pledges, and I think we are, are going to get there. And in fact, one reason I know that, uh, I see the indication uh, that many, I've been told, have completed their pledges for the building, the giving over and above regular budget, and they're continuing to give. Uh, and we just so appreciate that, uh, and we're so thankful. So I just say that is a tremendous response, and one that clearly shows God's hand in this project. And while you don't see dirt moving yet, but you will soon, there's two things I want to celebrate with you. First, while all this extraordinary giving and commitment has been going on, we have had the greatest growth in giving to our general fund, our operational fund that does our work here in, in this community and in the region and in internationally. We have had the greatest, we've had a record-breaking response to giving in the first three months of this ministry year while all this giving to the building is taking place. That's fantastic, folks. That really gives us confidence. And we are just so thankful. I'm so thankful for those who are prioritizing covenant as as a place of generous giving because they prioritize the mission of covenant. That's what it's about. It's about the people. And secondly, while this is happening in generosity, we have continued to grow in attendance. I don't know. We're just wedging people in. Uh, at times, we were regularly fitted with 120% of our capacity. We've been hitting 130, 135% of our capacity for people here, and we've had the largest attendance in a ministry season so far. And last weekend was the largest attendance that we have had on a non-Easter weekend in our history as a church. So God is continuing to move here. Let's give thanks to the Lord. He is so good. Not many churches get to do what we're about to do and to see happen. And so uh, let's truly, let's bow before the Lord. Let's pray for those approvals and for all the Lord is doing here. So Father, with thanksgiving, clearly this is your work. Clearly it's the work of your spirit that's causing so many in our immediate community to give space to hear and experience and receive Christ into their lives and families. So we give you praise for that. We pray that your grace would be upon this team as they seek to dismantle any obstacle to getting the final approval. Lord, you know we want to do everything the right way. We want to meet all of those requirements uh, and to receive the right approvals. So we just pray you would, you would go before us in this and grant this very soon so that we can know, we pray we would know that we could break ground in the spring. And be with the bids and the funding. Lord, give us bids that will certainly be fair to the contractors, but also will truly be good stewards of the dollars that have been entrusted to this work. 
And we continue to pray for the spiritual renewal in our community and for the growth that makes all of this actually necessary. We give you praise for that and we commit this to you. Now speak to us in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I have the prisoners preaching to you about why Jesus. We're going to be looking at that over uh, this month of December. Uh, And we're looking at a passage where Jesus highlights mercy. In fact, uh, he quotes in this passage from Hosea 6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And you know, some people quote the Bible and they get it wrong and they misapply the Bible. But when Jesus quotes the Bible, you can be sure he gets it right. And this is a verse from Hosea 6 that Jesus quoted a couple times in different circumstances to nail the reality of what was happening and how it had to be corrected uh, with his reality. Uh, It comes in the context of him recruiting an unlikely disciple. So let's read that context, and then I want to break open what Jesus' application of mercy is. Matthew 9, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. And he's quoting from Hosea 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus here is saying something very radical. He is saying mercy is actually more important than worship. He's saying that mercy is so important to God that you cannot hide in the Uh, rituals and rules of religion and treat people like dirt and please God. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's it's more important. Uh, And and so this is the verse I want to lay before us that Jesus quotes here uh, because mercy is the very heart of God. uh, Micah chapter 6 verse 8, God says, I have shown you what is required of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, mercy, walking humbly with God. Uh, And he says you should love mercy. Jesus excoriated the Pharisees. He said that you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. We think of the weightier matters of the law. I wonder how many of us would say, well, mercy is. But Jesus says, no, justice and mercy and faith are the weightier matters of the law. And so I want to look at two things out of this text. I want to look at what stops you and me from being merciful And then I want to look positively at what will fuel us to express the mercy of God. And the first thing in the context of this, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's showing them mercy by just talking to them. Uh, And they were people who had misdefined what faithfulness to God was. The Pharisees had replaced the importance of how we treat all people, even outsiders, with a religiosity that placed the emphasis on rituals and rules. By doing this, they created their own little religious echo chamber and applause center for performing rituals and rules, and they displaced the role of how we treat 
outsiders, the needy, people not like us, and they formed their own religious club, us for no more, close the door, and applaud each other as they do the little rituals and rules. And Jesus had exposed that kind of wrong-headed thinking about what was important with this expose, saying again from the exact quote from, from Hosea 6, which they would have known, he says, mercy is more important than uh, sacrifice and the acknowledgement of God. Or you might say the true knowledge of who God is can't be masked by your going through the rituals of offering burnt offerings, even those uh, that had been commanded. And, and so their problem was they had a kind of mystifying faithfulness, but the second thing that prevented them from mercy was they had a kind of tribalism. They criticized Jesus and assumed that he was contaminating who he was by his association with Matthew and even his, his reclining at the table with Matthew. Now, I want you to see, Matthew was not just a dude who was unpopular because he worked for the IRS and nobody likes to pay taxes. That was not the deal. Would it be a tax collector in Jesus' day meant that you were part of an oppressive system? Uh, Israel was occupied by a foreign dictatorship and militaristic power that exercised an oppressive presence in Israel by a massive army of soldiers who constantly made the lives of those who lived there miserable. They, these, there were so many of these soldiers, if they caught the whiff of a uh, roast getting ready to be served in a house, they just marched in and took it and took it for themselves. They sometimes raped the daughters of these people. Uh, they sometimes just took possessions. They just arbitrarily took over, and there were so many of them, there was no hope for them to be dispelled. How did the Roman government afford all of these oppressive military soldiers? People like Matthew. And Matthew's sitting at his tax collector's booth, and he's just collecting away knowing that if anybody resists, he has all of these soldiers he can just call who will, who will pillage or beat or intimidate these people even worse. And so Matthew is not just an ordinary sinner. He is a vulture of the people. He is a traitor. He is part of this oppressive system. And so the Pharisees, in terms of, of their analysis, was, yes, he's very unrighteous. But they despised him so much that they excommunicated, they expelled him from their tribe. And so we need to understand that. And Jesus here is saying, but this is who I've come for. I have come, and you could say, Jesus is saying, I've come exclusively. But he says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. No doctor sets up his practice and says, I just want to praise all the healthy people. He's there to heal the sick. This is who Jesus is. And, and here is the problem. There is this thing that is a, a disgust reflex in us that is often applied to physical things, but when it gets applied to spiritual categories and particularly other people's sins, people who don't sin the same way that we sin, it is particularly toxic and dangerous. Uh, and a, an example of, of a natural disgust reflex would be this little experiment. Uh, Richard Beck, a psychologist, cites that this has actually been evaluated, that if, if someone presents you with a glass, your favorite beverage, I think this is iced tea, one of my favorites, and, and, and pours it in a glass that has a roach in it, okay? I don't think anybody in the room is going to drink that, and for good reason. But then if they take that and say, I'm going to take this liquid, take the roach out, and I'm going to put it in a distillery. I want to put it in something that causes it all to evaporate and then go through condensation, and then it comes out, and you put a clean glass underneath there, and it's basically distilled water. There's no longer any iced tea in that. 
and they present it to you, there are many of us that would just have a gag reflex and a disgust, and like, we don't want to drink that. And that is irrational, folks. It's irrational because the pollutant that was there is not permanent. And our problem is when these things get taken out of the physical into the spiritual, we have the tendency to define and give a permanence to pollutants that is greater than the power of the one who came to cleanse us from all those pollutants and bring his purity over that power. That's part of our our irrationality that we think it's permanent. Uh, The second thing that we do, and I'll give you another little experiment. Richard Beck talks about this in his great book, Unclean. This guy filled his swimming pool with wine, with good wine. Now, I I, I was sharing this last night, and uh, associate pastor John Marcotte, who, before he was uh, a pastor, a Baptist pastor coming here, he was a salesman of fine wine in Manhattan. Uh, and so if you need a selection of what the right dinner wine is, you can call John and he'll tell you. Uh, and I, so I told this, like, ima- this guy has fine wine in this. And imagine if the woman at the other end of this pool um, is stationed there strategically, and this guy says, okay, you can have your bucket ready to dip into this fine wine and, and take as much of it home as you want, but you can't dip the bucket in until this woman, holding a medicine dropper, drops one drop of urine in the pool. I said, many of us will just be, we'll freaked out. We're freaked out. We're like, and that is not permanence, but it's, it's dominance. We think like one drop of urine in the far end of the pool means we can't drink the rest. Now, John says that analogy doesn't work because he says, I would just take bucket after bucket after bucket of that wine home. I'm not going to be daunted by the drops of urine. But for many of us, maybe the rest of us, maybe the rest of humanity, (laughs) we're going to say, that so grosses me out. Even though I know it's still the far end of the pool, I don't want anything to do with that. And that is an irrational kind of negativity dominance that does not make sense. It does not make sense in the presence of Jesus. And while it's one thing in the physical realm to have a disgust reflex, it is toxic and dangerous to make the pollutant, the sin, the brokenness more dominant than the one who came to heal that brokenness. Our problem is, spiritually, it's very toxic when we think that when a pollutant and a pure object come into contact, the pollutant is stronger and ruins the pure object. We We render the pure object powerless, and that's what was happening here. They were criticizing Jesus, the source of emanating powerful purity for associating with Matthew the tax collector. If they had estimated the situation right, they should have said, wow, I'm going to invite Matthew next because after he spent time in the presence of Jesus, this is suitable company for me. Why didn't they think the other way? Why didn't they think, wow, this power of Jesus overwhelms this? Um, They couldn't get there. And again, when this mentality of the pollutant is more powerful than the purifier, Jesus, if that takes hold in a church, contact with the world is seen as compromising. The guilt with association, a horrible, toxic view of humanity, guilt by association, leads the church to withdraw, to quarantine, and separate itself from the world. And Jesus reverses this. Even Jesus' miracles prove his dominance over the natural, But he is coming as a redeemer who has dominance. He did not come into the world fearing contamination. And and if we don't get this, um, we will find ourselves coasting with the current of of a kind of contamination response and be tempted to 
separate, withdraw, quarantine. Uh, and so again, they should have rejoiced and said, Jesus has such powerful virtue that is going to overwhelm the virtue less. But they went in the reverse direction. It would be like you saying to me on a, on a warm summer day, if I had a bucket of ice, you'd say, don't throw that up into the sky because you might cool off the sun. That's ridiculous. Or, or if you had a, a vat of Clorox bleach to be used for the bleaching of clothes uh, or the sterilization of things, and you had just an eyedropper and dropped an eyedropper of bacteria into that as well. I'm not going to use that Clorox anymore. See, the problem is, do you believe in the power, in the purifying power? Because what happens to that bacteria is it no longer exists in the form that it was in. It's gone. It has been dissolved and obliterated. And this is what Jesus does to the pollutant in your heart, in my heart. This is his power in those he comes into contact with. But the Pharisees sided with the power of pollutant and sin over the power of Jesus. Do you see how horrible that is? Do you see what a slander that is on the power of God? I think of one analogy I love. I mean, if you're, if you're an Eagles fan, it's really, it's fun to love Carson Wentz, and I do love Carson Wentz. But for us, I also love Michael Vick. If we're thinking like, and, and especially, and just by results, we should be thinking, it should be as easy to love Michael Vick as you love Carson Wentz. And I love this this little thing that came out on Twitter, Tony Dungy, great Christian coach of the Colts, he was the first one in on Michael Vick's redemption. When Michael Vick was in prison for the cruelty to dogs and all this, Tony Dungy was the first one out of the gate who was putting his arm around him and believing in Michael Vick's redemption. And you know when he did that before Michael Vick showed any, any evidence of the profound work that God has done in his life, uh, Tony Dungy came under a lot of criticism for this. And this little tweet came out on November 17th of this year. Uh, and Tony Dungy says, I'm very proud of Michael Vick. It's exactly what he said he would do in 2009. He's kept his word. What did he keep his word doing? Michael Vick had bankruptcy. He owed $17.6 million in bankruptcy. And he's paid back $17.4 million of the $17.6 million. And he's going to pay it all back. It's incredible. I mean, Carson Wentz, great witness, but he cannot, he, he cannot do some of what Michael Vick does in this. The evidence of this it is profound and amazing. But here's the thing. Tony Dungy was believing and risking and siding and putting his arm around Michael Vick when none of this was a reality. And you see, church, that's, that's Jesus. That smells like Jesus. That is Jesus. Incarnate in those situations. And, and as you're around Christians, especially Christians who take their faith, who take the word of God seriously, there is sometimes a kind of crusty, curmudgeonly Christianity that has kind of an edge. It's grouchy, it's cynical, it's irritable. Are you experiencing any of that? I mean, you could just, the most graceless highway that's ever been invented is the internet highway. <laughs> and I've just been aware there were, there were Christian evangelists that I could name for you, but I'm not going to name them, but just uh, who went to uncharacteristically hostile, difficult places to carry Jesus and the gospel with. And as they went, these self-appointed watchdog bloggers for Christ came up and started to publish critiques like, I don't know, that evangelist I always thought was a sound evangelist, but now they're going over here talking to this group and ministering to this group. I, I'm not going to give to them anymore. I don't think they're worthy of support. There's this whole nasty undertone and it's coming from christian people slapping verses uh, of outrage on these evangelists 
And, and one of the evangelists basically said, he said, what do you expect me to do? Go to Christian people? I'm an evangelist. I'm trying to bring this to people who don't know who Jesus is. But here's part of the horror. I realize that sometimes as I've read those critiques, it, it starts to sow a little seed in suspicion in me. Or, or maybe this, I said, why is this great person lending their credibility to this group by appearing in public with them? Do you see what I'm doing? I'm saying the power of a drop of pollutant is more powerful than the matchless resources of Jesus to overcome that. Why don't I think the other way? Why don't I think, wow, the Holy Spirit must be working in this group. They've invited this person to come. Whoa, I want to pray for that. Why don't I? It's because, again, I've not understood the mercy of God in this situation. Believe in the power of Christ to transform do not. The Bible does not teach. You will not find the teaching of the fear of guilt by association, contamination by association. That is a lie from hell. Do not believe it. And those things can diminish our ability to show mercy. But let's look at the positive. What fuels us to express mercy? What fuels us to express mercy? And the first thing that fuels us is a humble empathy. Um, you cannot look out for someone if you're looking down on someone. You cannot multitask. You cannot do both of those things at the same time. And empathy is identifying with others rather than disassociating with others. And I experienced this recently just by God's grace, overcoming my natural response. I, my wife was taking her mom back to New York, and I had an evening where dinner was not provided for me. And I remembered I, someone had given me a Chipotle gift card through their kindness. And so I thought, oh, I don't have to spend this 10 bucks on a burrito, but I'm going to go do that. So I went and I made this incredible burrito. You know, you get to pick how you have it. And it's all before the cashier. And I handed her the gift card. So happy I wasn't going to have to part with anything in my wallet. And she looked at me and just said, oh, you know what? Our machines are broken. We can't take your gift card. <laughs> so welling up in me were a few thoughts. <laughs> you know, and I was like, I, I mean... I'm mouthwatered for this burrito now, but um, I'm like, you know, I only came here because I had this gift card. I was going to whine, complain, whatever. But, um, but I'm like, but this is the Doylestown Chipotle, and some of you might be there watching me or whatever. <laughs> so I decided to be a little more Christ-like, and instead of whining, complaining, and joining that chorus, I just, I looked at her, and I had a moment of empathy, and I just said, poor you. Because you've got to be the messenger for this, and anybody who brings a gift card, they're going to give you a hard time. And she was just like floored that I empathized with her. And the best part was she reached out to the cashier and said, here's a coupon for a free burrito. I can't honor it this time, but you can come next time for a free one. <laughs> There's rewards to being nice in this world. <laughs> but I just thought like that, that empathy, it's, when it's shown, our world is so mean that mercy's a megaphone. And when we show it, people are astonished. And uh, the thing that stops us is we don't have a humble empathy. Have you ever been at a restaurant and you have an incompetent waiter or waitress and you begin to experience self-righteous outrage and you begin to think if you're like me, well, I'm, this is going to come off the tip. They didn't service. The meals were uh, either cold or ill-timed. One person got it. And then 20 minutes later, another person. You ever sit in that role? And, and then have you ever gone to a restaurant that you have a friend or maybe a son or a daughter who's waiting tables on 
and they're in the exact same situation. There's more customers than the wait staff can handle. There's a new wait staff, your son or daughter, or uh, someone you love, and they're overwhelmed, and it changes it, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you say to the person who is your friend and your loved one, you say, hey, don't worry about us. We're the happy table. Take care of everybody else first. We're just happy to be here. We're worried about you. We're concerned about your stress. You're overworked. The management maybe has made some bad decisions. We're not going to take it out on you. And you're changed. Why are you changed? Because you love them. And because you see them as part of you. They're part of your community. It's like Dave Barry said, the person who's kind to you but acts like a jerk to the waiter or waitress is not a kind person. And, and the span, what Jesus wants, mercy basically means that you and I treat people with the same warmth, the same consideration, and the same sympathy that we would treat ourselves. Uh, this is the reality. When I, I use one scale naturally for other people's sins, and I use one scale for my sins. So my scale, it's very hard to get a whole lot of weight registering on it. Your scale, I mean, step on it, and it's... Boom. And so when other people are late, wasting my time, disrespecting me, why do I have to wait? Why didn't they call? When I'm late, I have a perfectly rational, good excuse, <laughs> and I shouldn't even have to explain it. The staff is really laughing at this point. Um, <clears throat> why do we do that? We do that because we're very merciful toward ourselves. I, you know, we live in a world where there are a lot of people with quirks. Don't look around. Just look straight ahead. But there's a lot of people who are really quirky. And you know, I'm quirky. We all have these quirks. How do I want you to look at, look at my quirks? I want you to find them endearing. <laughs> but but that's, not, that's not how we do that. That's not how we process that. So so mercy comes from a humble empathy. Look at them as a loved one. Look at them as yourself. I want people to look at my quirks and say, well, he was raised that way. He's from that culture. This is his background. He's under these stresses this week. He know, he's dealing with this and this and this. That's empathy. That's a humble identifying empathy. Treat everyone like your most beloved. Here's the reality. When we love someone, when we join with them, it removes any kind of disgust and contamination sensitivity. It's amazing. When you have kids how different it is to change your baby's diaper than uh, your older sister's baby's diaper. <laughs> it just, I mean, one time I was doing a baptism with one of our kids and their diaper exploded. It was not number one, it was number two on a tan suit. And it was like disgusting, but I wasn't really disgusted. I just wiped it away and then I preached the sermon. It was fine. But if it had been your baby, let me tell you, I would have been like, oh, get the hazmat out. I mean, <laughs> ooh, what's happened? I mean, we're disgusted, right? We're disgusted by spit. But, but think of, you know, when you were in your, your romantic engagement with your spouse, it's like, hey, swapping spit. Huh, sounds like fun. Yeah, that's, um, the disgust reflex goes away because of love. And, and when the, the, again, the disgust reflex should never, ever be applied spiritually. That's so dangerous when we, when we quarantine or exercise tribalism. I'm going to tell you a little parable that Richard Beck has in his book, it's of a priest and a demonic figure. This is just a parable to teach a lesson. Didn't really happen. Not in the Bible. But he, but he says this priest, as he tells the story, was confronted by a demonic figure, comes to the door and knocks and says, I want to come in your church. And the priest is like, who am I? All I have is to be surrendered. 
to whoever might be needy or in need of hospitality come in. And so the demon comes in and he makes an absolute wreck of the church, destroying its holy artifacts and messing up everything. Then the demon comes to him and says, I have another request. I want you to let me in your home. The priest again says, who am I? I am but a vector of hospitality. And so he welcomes the demon in and the demon does the same thing again, destroys the house, just makes an absolute mess of it. And then the demon comes to him and says, I have yet another request. He says, I want to come into your heart. And the priest says, who am I? I give hospitality to anyone who has need. And the demon starts to shudder and shrink and step back. And then the demon says, I wasn't after your hospitality. I was trying to remove your kindness from you. I was trying, and, 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 and what he's saying is he's saying what the demons really are trying to do when they come to us is trying to get us to, to batten down the hatches, to declare our own safety, to quarantine ourselves because they know that will destroy us it will not infect us with being a vector of unrighteousness, but it will infect us with a tribalistic self-righteousness. And that's the only thing that can really destroy us from being vectors of the purifying, redemptive, all-encompassing power of the love of Christ. And that's really what's going on in our text. If you read the whole narrative, the Pharisees thought they had spirituality down and that Matthew was compromising it. But as you read the narrative, Matthew gets it, He's transformed. He follows Jesus. And what then does Matthew do? What's his first thing? He throws a party, a Jesus-shaped party for his fellow tax collectors. So the text is screaming at us, if you want to know who gets Jesus, it's not the Pharisees. It's Matthew who is doing what Jesus just did to him. Jesus has just so communicated with Matthew that he's reproducing that act of mercy. And now Matthew's inviting all of his tax collectors in. Because here, here is the threat. Uh, if we exclude someone, the New Testament is concerned, not, if we wrongly exclude someone, Jesus, who sees Matthew excoriated, insulted, and excluded, Jesus doesn't turn to Matthew and put his arm around him and say, oh, poor you, you're being mistreated by the Pharisees. Now, that was true, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is concerned about what is going to happen to the Pharisees if they continue this kind of unfounded, conceited, self-righteous behavior. If we exclude someone, the New Testament is concerned about what happens to us, the excluders, as we become contaminated with self-righteousness and a sin that would eradicate the mercy of Christ flowing out of us. And so I want to just close with two appeals. First one, all of us here need to take inventory of our own hearts personally and how we've received this. Um, have we allowed, have you allowed your failure and sin to define you and therefore defeat you uh, and depress you? Um, I love this phrase. It says, the devil knows your name but calls you by your sin. It's the devil who wants to do that to you. He wants your sin, your failure, your relapses, your brokenness and struggles to define you. The devil knows your name but calls you by your sin. But God knows your sin and he calls you by your name, your new name. And much of the Bible was written by people who were given a radical second chance. Do you know, much of the Bible you have was written by murderers given a second chance. If there were no second chances for murderers, your Bible would be a lot shorter. It wouldn't contain the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by a murderer. Moses, who was given a second chance. Uh, if murders weren't given a second chance, you wouldn't have the book of Psalms in your Bible, written much of it, not all of it, but by David. 
And if murderers weren't given a second chance, the Apostle Paul would not have been able to write most of the New Testament and be a trailblazer for grace. The Bible you have would be a much, much shorter book. It would look almost like cliff notes compared to what it is if it would, did not have second chances for murderers. And it would also be a book that did not have the hope for sinners of the likes of you and me. The Bible tells us at the heart of the universe is a love too great to be limited by what we deserve. And God is always talking to us and he's saying to you and to me, saying to me, hey, Bob, guess what? I'm better than you think. I say, okay. And then he says, hey, Bob, guess what? You're worse than you think. I'm like, yeah, okay. And then the third thing he says is, and let's get together. That wouldn't occur to me. God says, I'm better than you think. Yeah, you're worse than you think. Yeah, but let's get together. I love you because the purifying power of what Jesus went to the cross for is greater than your sin and I have cast it into the sea of my infinite forgetfulness and buried it under the work of Jesus. You know, every one of us, every one of you, I know this, every one of us is a sinner and a failure and a disappointment. You are all sinners, failures, and disappointments. And you know it. But what are you doing with that? The key to all of that is really the key to becoming a merciful person. Because to be a merciful person, you become aware of the brokenness by which Christ has dealt with you and is making you totally different than what you were by nature. And you get the power to be transformed and to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything you are and have to sheer divine mercy. And if you don't have that, you will be susceptible to a bondage to a religious trivia. And so the key to becoming a merciful person is to know God. And to know God means you know his mercy and you receive it because you have to receive it before you can dispense it. Do you know God in that way? Or are you allowing your sins, failures, and relapses and your current troubles and struggles to define you and therefore deter you and depress you? Don't do it. Apply this to yourself. Receive the mercy of Christ. His arms are outstretched. He knows it all. And his arms are outstretched to you. But secondly, if you've received it, this is the mission that we have. We want our church not to be known for a new shiny building or its size or dynamism. We want it to be known as a place that we are pumping untold flow of mercy into the Doylestown community and beyond. The mercy of God. God is, wants us to be known not as a people who are afraid of getting contaminated by the dirt of the world, but a people who are virulent with the contagious with a holy mercy. We've been purified to the one who faced down our sin and didn't give it a day or a second or the quietest, slightest tincture or taint in his spirit. He's won the victory for us. But Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you and I could consume restoration for ourselves. But he did it so having it for ourselves, we could extend that restoration to others. And on Calvary, Jesus cried, restore and Spread this restoration in a people who are restored. And if we have received that restoration and heard that cry that paid the price of the cross, we have to extend that to others. We have to be a people who extend that mercy. And so I just ask you, is mercy in your life, is it more like a show you watch and you kind of applaud others? You give a golf clap and, yep, mercy, good. I'm glad they're doing mercy. I give a little to that, do that. 
Is mercy like a show you often watch? Or is mercy like a show you're a regular leading cast member in? And it's the role you take constantly and regularly dispensing mercy as a regular member of the cast. That's what Christ, that's what Christ wants for all of us. It's such a beautiful mission. It's so rare. It's so needed in our world. And you will feel the pleasure of Christ resting on you as you live your life that way. Let's chase after that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that Jesus came into the world. Really, he was the sacrifice of all sacrifices, fulfilling that so that, Lord, it would, we no longer have even the space or place to offer a sacrifice of our own. Just the hearts that are open, filled, and then mobilized in that mission of mercy. You split the sea through the cross that we could walk through it. Lord, hear this closing song as we declare that we, by grace and mercy, are your children. May we delight in it. May it reinforce that. And may it help us live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.